Support for the Greater Than Code podcast comes from O'Reilly Fluid and Velocity Conferences, coming to San Jose, California, June 11th through 14th. Join us for hands-on training to help improve performance, resilience, and user experience. Learn from the experts like Lynn Clark, Sarah Federman, Seth Vargo, and Julia Grace. Register with code GTC20 to save up to $519 on your pass. Learn more at O'Reilly.com slash better together. Hello, and welcome to episode 82 of Greater Than Code. I'm Sam Livingston Gray, and I'm here with my great friend, Coraline Ada Emke. Hi, and I'm here with a terrible, terrible voice because I've been dealing with a sore throat for the past few days. But one of my favorite people in the world is on a podcast today, and I wasn't going to miss it for the world. So also here with my friend, John. Thanks, Coraline. Uh, we're here with Oren, who is a founder of Iara, a DevOps consultancy based out of Wellington, New Zealand, focused on helping clients develop technical DevOps capability and the cultural knowledge to use it. With over a decade of professional software development experience, Oren's expertise ranges from modern cloud deployments to massively parallel supercomputer environments. That sounds cool. As the defining right. voice of contempt culture, Oren is working to change the very nature of how we create new technologies and the questions that we must answer as we do. Welcome, Welcome to the show, Oren. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And favorite person, all uh, less than three. <laughs> yes, I'm old. It's okay. So, Oren, your name has actually come up frequently on this podcast over um, the span of time that we've been doing it, particularly with your work on contempt culture. It's something that comes up time and again as we talk to people. I wonder if we could start off by you giving sort of a high-level overview of what you mean by contempt culture. Okay. So, the history of this is as you know, tech culture is a bit uh, abrasive at times. We'll, we'll be gentle here. And so one of the things that I learned to do was this whole bash PHP thing, right? And I happened to be working with somebody a couple of years ago who said, uh, that's not okay. One of the times I'd done this bashing PHP thing. So that's kind of the the genesis of it is I was called out and said, don't do this thing because it has these ramifications. And all of a sudden, I, I had to reframe my entire worldview around that. And so it's kind of like where it came from in a very brief high level. As far as what, it, what contempt culture is, um, it's kind of baked really well into the name. Like It's a really good two-word way of describing this very elitism-based group membership dynamic. And that is kind of like the goal of contempt culture is my participation in a group depends on believing that the group is correct in thinking that things are bad. So within tech culture, we can see this within just PHP. If you say PHP, people will laugh because tech culture has built a group membership dynamic that says we are better than PHP users. This is elitism-based. This is what defines our in-group. We don't like PHP. That's the only, well, not one, the only, but one of the core criteria of belonging in tech. That's what it means. And yeah. what is the damage to people who are PHP developers when they hear that sort of thing? The damage that they experience is that they are actively othered. They're actively pushed out of tech communities. And I see this time and time again, that PHP devs will be trying to explain that they have done a cool thing, that they are making neat stuff, that they are doing good work. And as soon as they bring up the tools that they use, because we all bring up our tools, we all think about our tools, we all care about our tools. As soon as they bring up their tools, they're pushed out, they're laughed at, they're mocked. For what? For using tools that require as much talent and skill and knowledge as mine? Um, but they see this over and over again. And to the point where 
um, I was engaging with uh, a client a couple of years ago, and I, I don't have any direct PHP development experience or deployment experience, so I don't really understand the world. But we, I was having a conversation with them and discovered that they, and by they, I mean PHP land, has their own entire worldview on DevOps and DevOps tooling and this entire set of things that I didn't know about that they had to make because the rest of us wouldn't play nice. And that was like, why are we doing this? Why have we duplicated all this work unnecessarily like that? Uh, that's a direct technical cost of a uh, cultural behavior. Yeah, exactly. And this is kind of like the most pernicious part of contempt culture is for decades now, we have talked about how bad quote unquote PHP is on a security front and security standpoint. That kind of that's because we won't let them talk to us because we force them out. And so this is the same thing played out again using a new kind of modern idea of how we're talking about deployment and talking about automation and talking about item potency. It's the same thing. Oh, PHP is bad because they're bad at the thing. They're not bad at the thing. They're not bad at security. They're bad at being a part of our communities because we won't let them be. So they lose access to this knowledge. And this is the entire genesis of why PHP is bad as a thing. It comes from a position where PHP was accessible to people who didn't have historic elitist computer science knowledge. Therefore, these people weren't a part of our community. Therefore, they didn't obey our community dynamic from the beginning. Therefore, you've all heard of Eternal September, right? That's the elitist mindset that rejected the fact that the, all of these PHP people were coming in and weren't coming from that background, weren't coming from the Usenet community. These are people who were cool or super excited about the internet and being a part of the web. And here they are trying to come in, trying to play and being rebuffed and pushed out. And of course, they're going to go, I don't want to play in this in this pool. This is This is not fun. And they'll go off and they'll do their own thing. And then we'll look at that and go, well, that's got all these security holes. You're doing it wrong. That's bad code practice. And so we have a self-perpetuating cycle that perpetuates to this day. And I, I think you're touching on a really important point too, Oren, in terms of the people who come into programming for the web. PHP is a way in for a lot of people. I know personally a lot of people who started with a WordPress site because they wanted to do a blog. And then they wanted to customize their WordPress site. And you do that using PHP. And that was HTML and, and CSS and PHP were their first introductions. And I think a lot of marginalized people get into computer programming that way. A lot of people from untraditional backgrounds get into web development that way. And some of that contempt that we're showing not only has a negative effect on those people, but I would say is actually motivated by contempt for those people. I would agree with that. Um, and we're seeing modern reflections of that with front-end dev, where front-end dev does tend, for whatever reason, to have more women in it. We're seeing that exact same effect. One of the biggest takeaways that I had from your initial article a couple of years ago was this idea that um, in order to gain membership in a more elite part of the culture, I have to perform contempt against people who are uh, further out in the circles than I am or that I want to be. And uh, so that's one of the ways that contempt culture perpetuates itself. And that was the one that I, I saw myself uh, taking the most personal responsibility for because I had, I had done those things and I hadn't had a name for them until your article. Yeah. The, the currency idea um, I've, it never quite felt right. Um, I needed some way of describing it. So it is coming from that perspective of you are trying to increase 
looking at like you're a part of the community. And I use currencies kind of to represent that. Like I am trying to acquire currency that I can spend as a community member. But that is like the most pernicious part of it is we need to feel like we belong. And if we're just coming into a community, we don't feel like we belong. So we pattern what other people do. This, this is the behavior that's acceptable. This is community standards. To get the cultural currency, the clout that I need, I need to behave like them. Otherwise, I don't belong here, right? And that's what we end up doing. Yeah, I think one interesting point about, like, you talked about the situation where one of the PHP or JavaScript developers talking about what they're doing and getting, you know, contempt for that. But I think even before that happens, even before they get to the point of talking about what they're doing in this language, they can see that contempt ambient in the culture. You, there are blog posts that derisively mention PHP or conference talks or any of that. So like they might not even get to the point where they want to talk about their cool thing because they've already experienced that contempt that you're talking about. Yeah, it is completely ambient. It is the background noise of our culture. Um, there are numbers of articles, as you've pointed out. I remember those articles from 2001 when I was learning to program. Like this has been around forever you go on Stack Overflow. Like, we all use Stack Overflow. You go on Stack Overflow, the amount of just dripping, seething contempt on Stack Overflow for things like PHP is remarkable. This is the background noise of our culture. This is what we think is okay. Are you implying that Stack Overflow is toxic? I don't have a Stack <laughs> Overflow account. I'm not going to make a Stack Overflow account. Uh, there are good and obvious reasons why. A couple months ago when the Facebook Cambridge Analytica thing came out, the parody account, I am developer, made fun of Facebook for using PHP. And um, I called them out and I got such a vitriolic response like, hey, you're not getting the joke or hey, PHP really does suck. And why is Facebook using it? A wide range of responses that all proves your point about contempt culture that I had to bear the brunt of. But I feel like it was really important to point out that if the punchline is it's PHP, that that's inappropriate. So I have deep feels about I am developer that I will go into excruciating detail if you ask. But um, I did want to touch on like that whole idea of people calling out, oh, but you didn't get the joke. Where the idea of it's a joke itself carries a lot of toxicity. And there's this like Twitter thread and academic paper I'll paste into the show notes where and just to kind of summarize, like it's a, jokes are how we propagate culture. Jokes, mm -hmm. like if you don't get the joke, you're not a member of the culture. And that's kind of like the core framework that these ideas around jokes are bringing, right? So when they're saying you didn't get the joke about, oh, PHP is bad. Well, what they're saying is you're not a member of the culture. And the member of the membership of the culture means you think PHP is bad. That's how that's structured. And a lot of people I've noticed don't. And by people, I'm not saying you, I'm saying conversations I've seen online don't get that nuance. They don't understand how jokes work in these contexts. Yeah, I've been seeing that a lot as my daughter grows up. Like, I'll laugh at something and she'll ask what it was. And if it's not completely inappropriate, I'll show her. And she usually goes, huh? And so then I find myself having to unpack and explain, like, all of the things that led into, like, why that joke even makes sense at all. And she'll sort of get that, but she won't get why it's funny. And I'm like, it's because you haven't been through it, you know, 50 times. <laughs> It'll be funny someday. It, it, it's okay. But yeah, like that actually reminds me of one of the tactics that I've seen suggested as a way of interrupting shitty behavior like that, you know, especially in the form of a joke is to 
deliberately act as though you don't understand it and need to have it explained so that the person who has made the joke will unpack it for you. I don't know how effective that is, but it certainly feels satisfying. I haven't tried that one yet. And I've thought about it and I've wanted to, but mostly I unpack it for them and go into detail that they didn't want. And yeah. then they start getting really uncomfortable. And that, that's probably that, effective too. That is a discomfort that is called for, right? If we want to affect change in the status quo, people are going to have to be made to feel uncomfortable. And that discomfort is hard. And this is a huge part of um, my consulting practice and just kind of my practice as a whole now with regards to contempt culture is kind of like addressing that behavior is not personality. Personality is the wrong word there, but like you are bad is different from that was bad. And I have to make such a point of calling out that was bad and like deconstructing the defensiveness that that comes up with. So I was saying, Oh, that thing you did was bad. And there was an example recently that I had where something sexist was said in a space I was in. And I had to say that thing was sexist and it has this underpinning framework of why, but it was being taken across as you are sexist. And it was really hard for me to try to communicate that difference. And that's been like a huge thing. So yeah, I totally hear you there. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard thing to do to stand up and and call something out, but finding a way to do it that causes the least amount of defensiveness is certainly a skill worth having, but also a difficult achievement. I've, I've been in similar situations. Yeah. And I, I just want to point out that that is emotional labor that you are being asked to perform. Oh, it 100% is. In some cases, like for my business, when I'm actively doing that, because we need to talk on a corporate cultural level about what we're doing and why that's part of the job. Like I'm coming into that Mm -hmm. with that expectation and being able to say, I'm going to say this thing and you're probably going to feel defensive about it. That goes a long way. Like if I just say that sentence, that goes a long way towards people feeling better about what I'm saying because Mm. I'm not attacking them. I'm saying you will feel this because of these other things and that's okay. Validation works so well. Oh, that's cool. But yes, this is a large amount of emotional labor. And doing this in communities that I'm a part of, is it sucks up so much. And to the point where I've just left communities because I've had, I just can't do it anymore. How do we distribute that labor? We're doing it right now. Well, I've heard like federated protocols are, uh, are like really popular. Maybe we could federate something. <laughs> I'll get right to work on that RFC, Aaron. But I don't know how do we distribute this. A lot of where I'm coming from comes from being immersed in tech feminism for years. How do I distribute that effectively? How do you talk about feminist ideas and feminist concepts and feminist framings without the rhetoric of feminism? Because the rhetoric of feminism is the part that turns people off almost immediately. But the ideas are still really good. And if you can get the ideas out of the rhetoric, they like them. How do we work with this? How do we distribute that? And I've seen other spaces I'm in like very large spaces have dedicated allies spaces where like marginalized people will participate in. They'll be in the allies space, but the expectation is they can tag in the allies to do this one-on-one level work and do this emotional labor to get them going on something more than I need to explain the basis again. And I don't want to. Yeah. Some of the Slack communities I'm on, a couple of them have unlearning racism channels And one of them has unlearning sexism and one of them has unlearning gender. And it's people who understand that maybe they don't have a complete picture of the world 
or as full an understanding of the world as they would like, coupled with volunteers who do have the energy to do some of that one-on-one work. And I, I think that that can work pretty well, but burnout is a real problem in spaces like that. Oh, so much so. It's so much work. And it's so much work having the same conversations with the same arguments and the same like responses. And just it becomes formulaic and you can just watch it not happening over and over again. It just gets really frustrating. Hence me having to burn out and leave spaces that I didn't want to have to leave. It it sucks. And I think this does tie back into contempt culture to drag it back around in that like there are big cultural pressures to remain contemptuous of these ideas and in order to perform belonging i have to internalize and participate in that contempt of these ideas and i am choosing not to therefore i am choosing to place myself outside and place myself in a contemptuous frame from these other people which i only just thought of just now so there you go here's some new ideas seems like there's this really pernicious aspect of tech culture as well which is that you know tech culture likes to conceive of itself as being rational and so when you bring up these things that make people feel, I don't know, feelings and stuff, it gets really hard to have those conversations. <laughs> Ooh, and that's because feelings, of- yuck. <laughs> no, no. I can't have feelings. They they violate my rational Vulcan mind. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, and I think the the people that are most attached to the concept of rationality as their worldview tend to be less rational than most other people but they cling to it as if it sort of proves their own superiority. And, and they sort of run into it a lot where the worldview is rigid enough that they think there's really nothing that can get through because they think if it's rational and therefore it's better, anything that's less rational is therefore less useful. And there isn't really any way to get around that argument. It's the same thing as that goes into meritocracy where it's like, Oh, if there's more merit, then obviously it's better. And so we don't have to examine the system that assigns the merit. Right. Or even well, define what merit is, right? Merit is like me. It's most like me. Therefore, I am meritous. Therefore, the things I think of are superior, are clearly objectively superior. This is how this works, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. No problems with the logic at any point in that chain. No, I mean, story checks out. I could like draw some maths and everything. I probably can't draw some maths, actually. I don't, I don't know formal logic, but you see where I'm going here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what's really interesting about that, that it's like ideas around meritocracy and around um, like objective, quote unquote, technical superiority is like this thing I've been talking about the last six months a lot around technology is political. All technology is political because it carries the ideas that made it within it. As a DevOps, I see a lot with um, organizations wanting to adopt Docker and Docker's cool. I like Docker a lot. Like I highly recommend you use Docker. The thing about Docker, though, is that it is a tech, it is a political artifact of a very specific worldview and understanding of what deployment and artifacts and item potency and all of these things mean. So if I come to an organization and say, you should use Docker, I'm not saying, here's a cool technology stack for you. What I'm actually saying is, let's tear down and rebuild your entire development, product management, and release lifecycle at once. And by the way, we're also going to like make all of your sysadmins deeply uncomfortable and possibly rewrite the entire ability of you to buy physical hardware to rack in a, in a data center. That's what I'm saying. And technologists as a whole do not have, for some reason or another, the, under, the base understanding of if I'm bringing a technology to, a pe- to people, I'm bringing this big 
big, big chain of things that come with it. And I think that's like the worst part of like tech is rational or the like rationality mentality. You can't see it, but, but I'm making like air quotes with my hands where you're missing out on that. And so people will get frustrated. They'll get angry because, oh, but I think this tech is better, but they have no concept or no ability to understand why there's no uptake or why they're experiencing difficulty getting traction. And then when it fails, they go, oh, well, it, the project failed for political reasons. And tech culture's focus on rationality doesn't give you the tools to grapple with that, to unpack it, to figure out what went wrong. And the, the pl- word political, the way you just used it, kind of carries that level of contempt for like the knowledge and the oh, skills yeah. that would help them do this. I want to use Docker. Therefore, I will, I will make fun of and be contemptuous of the very ideas that will help me use Docker. I mean, this is, this is the sentence that they are using. Why are they using this sentence? And for people who claim to have a wonderful, deep, and intuitive understanding of systems and how to uh, view and manipulate systems, they really, really don't. There is this <laughs> massive, interesting system here that they are ignoring as hard as they can. Biggest blind spot. So, Oren, you're doing a lot of DevOps work now, and um, you and I have had conversations, and I've observed your conversations with other people about the cultural impact of DevOps. I think um, the entire DevOps movement is really interesting in the cultural changes that it brings to a development organization, and how do you see that playing in? So, let's start with the good things. The good things that are coming out of it are that... We're starting to view technical development and operations as aspects on a gradient. I have a web developer background. One of the things I've recently come to realize is that I have never run my code until it has been in production the first time. Like That's the thing. is If it's on my laptop, if I'm testing it, I haven't run my program yet. It isn't run until it's in prod, servicing prod requests in that full integration environment. And that was a hard one to get my head around because that requires deconstructing like all of these ideas around my own mentality of development is separated from operations. I have to view myself on a gradient for that to even be fundamentally able to be thought about. So that's like one of the major good things is we're starting to view that there is no fundamental distinction. We need to think about deployment and operations and maintenance and all of these other things as integral to the development lifecycle. If we're not thinking about that, we're not developing code. If we're not thinking about that, we can't run our code. We can never, never run our code. We lose observability over our code. And so being able to point at DevOps and say, let's do this. Let's think about it like this. That's great. It gives us the opportunity to, because there's so much contempt culture between devs and ops, and I reference this endlessly, that we're starting to break that down. We're having those conversations. One of the other really good things about this is that it's giving us the tools, and by us I mean myself, but also kind of technologists as a whole, to start talking about siloed organizations and how that's problematic. Because part of why DevOps splits happen is because ops is IT, it's support, quote unquote, whereas devs are not. Devs are, they're a cost center, but they're part of the um, um, on the line sort of concept. They're, they're making the thing that makes money, whereas IT is slash ops is pure business as usual. It is a cost center. So there is an artificial divide within corporate culture. DevOps demands that we deconstruct that, that we think about these people as the same continuum. Therefore, 
we're being given to, the tools to, to deconstruct other organizational boundaries. We start to look at, okay, why are devs and ops people elitist over non-technical? I hate the word non-technical over people with other deep, meaningful skill sets that aren't computer based. Um, and we start to deconstruct that and we start to like really get the tools to address contempt culture and address the way we perform grouping dynamics just by looking at the concept of DevOps, which I think is really cool. The downsides of DevOps have been that actually people, at least in New Zealand, I can't speak globally, but in New Zealand, DevOps isn't being treated as DevOps. It's being treated as ops. So people are, are requesting DevOps engineers as roles. DevOps isn't a role. It mm-hmm. is a process. It's like asking for an agile engineer. It is fundamentally nonsense <laughs> as a sentence, but yet there it is. So DevOps is being just flat out treated as ops. And that's problematic. That is deeply problematic because it's losing out everything that DevOps is. It's losing out everything that matters about having developers who are aware of operational and productionized needs. It is, it is losing this idea of if you haven't run your code in prod, it hasn't run. Like it's missing that. And um, it's trying to put uh, DevOps into its own silo so that you can offload all your responsibilities onto people in that silo and forget about them. Exactly. I mean, that's what we have now, right? If you're right. running classic ops and you do the same thing, well, cool, you've got classic ops again, only now they've got better, now they've got Puppet. I mean, it's the same thing. <laughs> but it's also given like devs that have not critically considered what DevOps means, the just enough tools to build systems that, what's the best way of describing this? That don't take into consideration the full production knowledge base that they need because they aren't consulting with people that have the full set of ops skills historically. So as a new dev coming in, I think I can run something up on AWS and I can, that's really easy. Or I can drop something on Kubernetes on Azure, that's really easy. But I'm not thinking about everything because I'm still considering myself within contempt culture as a superior entity to ops people. And this is deeply pernicious set of thinking because this impacts InfoSec and this impacts deeply how I'm building my software in a secure fashion because security is is a reliability concern. Uptime is reliability concern. These things are kind of all in the same spectral space. And if I'm coming out of being like, oh, I'm a dev, I know how to do everything. I'm the best. I'm not leaning on those knowledge bases. I'm not using DevOps. I'm maintaining a DevOps split, but I'm using their tools without the full understanding of what I'm doing. And that's worrying and dangerous at times. Yeah, I mean, it's trivially easy to spin up a new EC2 instance with the wrong IAM permissions and just leave your database sitting out there. Or It is. All those MongoDBs out there that, that were just harvested last year, and like that sort of stuff is the stuff that I'm that I will help out with easily because it. But I also understand that there's a big conceptual jump there. Like I have a MongoDB and I have a a program running on my laptop, therefore I can put that on the internet and it's fine, right? Well, no. All of a sudden, you, to productionize, you need to think about subnetting and you need to think about private and public access points and you need to think about your IAM roles and your security groups and you need to think about data flow and trust zones like MongoDB. Okay, my MongoDB is a trusted entity. Where does that live in my network map? Why does it live there? And there's this and this is the sort of stuff that DevOps is supposed to be teaching devs because they need to be on that gradient, but they're not. They're 
just spinning up an EC2 instance on a public on the public internet. And well, I need to be able to log into my MongoDB to like debug stuff live and prod. So they break open the ports. No, do not do this <laughs> thing. Use a bastion. Use a jump host that you SSH into and tunnel across. But do they know how to do that? Not necessarily, because this is part of those skill sets that aren't being easily that are difficult to communicate or set up a VPN. But we all have so many bad experiences with VPNs that no one wants to go with a oh we'll just set up a VPN option. It's just why would you do that? It feels terrible. And the why do you would you do that is like a cultural response to bad VPN software and having to VPN into work. I don't want to have to set that up for myself. It just feels bad. So if you're sitting down with a new customer who's interested in the idea of bringing DevOps to their organization, but doesn't really understand the silo breakdowns and the skill sharing and all these things, how do you introduce the ideas in such a way that they land softly and can start that organizational change? Uh, It really depends on who I'm talking to. Devs will usually be very much on board with these ideas, and they may not necessarily have a full grasp of the number of things that I'm about to dump on them in terms of new technical skills and practice and things they'll need to consider. But it's great that they're there listening. Um, Harder conversations um, usually happen with business just because there is even more decades of history on how to structure a business that kind of is Mm -hmm. the silo mentality and the silo concept. How do you break that down? Separate budget, separate line items, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How do we talk about that in any sort of reasonable frame? And that becomes a lot harder of a conversation. And it really depends on the client. Like some are very much on board with, okay, this is how we're going to have to break down your your siloed system. And this is the ramifications that we'll see. And this is how we should talk about information flow. Others, it can be just a very long conversation. Um, but it's fine. They're like, oh, they will want to be there and come on the journey. Um, a lot of the hard conversations I've had to have are with trad ops. And not because they're bad people, but because the way that contempt culture and operational siloing functions in terms of oppressing them in that they're responsible for uptime. They're on pager. And if anything breaks, it's their butt on the line. What does that mean when I come in and I say, okay, cool. So the devs want to have like daily deploys and they want prod access. Can we do this thing? And they understandably and completely correctly say no. They they have what no you're other saying option. is basically we would like to take away your, the last remaining bit of control you have over whether you sleep. Exactly. And And not just that, we're going to take away your control over your sleep and we're going to blame you when it goes wrong because we're not at fault. We're the devs. We're, we're, we're infallible, right? Um, so TradOps has the longest journey and that's not because they want to say no. It's because they're forced to say no by the system that surrounds them. And that's a really hard thing to deconstruct organizationally. Because as I've said, they're on the line. How do we talk about that? How do we talk about moving from there must be uptime on this box to I must be able to replace the box within seconds? And that's a very different mentality and different way of approaching organizational design and approaching productionized design. Most shops haven't gone towards. They've gone towards, I have a box in a rack over there and it's got an, a dedicated downtime window once every month or six months. And that's when I get to apply patches versus 
I'm going to go over here and I'm going to make up my new VM image every day and I'm going to roll it. And, oh, it failed. I'll just cut back to the old one. These are, you can get similar uptime metrics out of this, but it requires different approaches and moving from one to the other is hard. So how do you create that sense of psychological safety for people to learn about the new way without just rejecting it? That is an organizational dynamics question. So I came up with this idea recently around how authority functions within silos. And when you propose this, let's move from a trad ops worldview where we own this server and we are responsible for its uptime. We move from that to we are not responsible for these things because of how we built it. Like these machines will just automatically rebuild themselves. We are responsible for the code that builds them. These are different organizations, right? These are different business unit structures. So moving from one to the other requires understanding that organizationally, these silos have been set up in an adversarial fashion. And by that, what I mean is that whenever, when I start saying we need to move from this to this, I'm not saying we should approach, we should rethink how we're doing things. What I'm saying is you shouldn't exist. I am proposing an existential crisis because the the adversarial model of authority requires that I maintain strict control over what I control. And anyone challenging that is a challenge to my right to exist. Once I started to understand that core concept, I started to be able to think about how do we move from this kind of adversarial model of, I can tell you what to do. I can force my will on you towards a model where you can't force your will on me. That's kind of like the core shift that underlies this entire ability to move from we've got some servers racked up and they have 100 days of uptime and we only roll patches every two months because that's our downtime window to I've got some VMs over here and they cycle every day, maybe. I don't know. not paying that close attention because outages are a non-event. Moving from one to the other requires thinking about this thing over here from a collaborative sort of standpoint of you can't tell me how to run my machines or how to run the infra, I will provide an infra worldview to you, I will meet my SLA, you can't tell me how I'm going to do that. And this provides like the existential safety of, as long as I can meet my SLA, I am not participating in your kind of adversarial worldview, I don't have to force my will on you, I can just give you stuff. And that makes it so much easier to make that transition. It's a really interesting mindset shift. Would it be fair to summarize that as uh, focusing on outcomes instead of procedures? Yes, exactly. It is very much an outcome focus versus a procedure focus. Um, and this also carries a lot of organizational, like everything just changed because organizations are based on that existing silo decades worth of, of history, very procedure focused. And coming to an outcome focus is internally very difficult at times. All right. I've often said that a process at a business is a kind of organizational scar over a broken communication channel. Um, Mm -hmm. How does that relate? How do you heal that underlying wound? I like that idea. And so like the clear way of of achieving that is physio of fixing that is physio, right? We, we work at it. We push it over and over again. Another way that I think about process is that it is processes are systems and Systems are interesting because systems dictate choices. They dictate what choices are permitted and what choices are not permitted and what choices are safe. So when we look at a process and we say, okay, this is how we do a thing. This is the change management process. Cool. We have a thing that says, you got to do these things. How do we fix that? Well, define fix. How do we 
how do we make this flexible for what we need? It comes back to that existential thing. Like, why do you exist? Why does your job deserve to continue existing? And some people I know have talked about their journey in doing this in a DevOps sense, where they wanted to roll a Kubernetes cluster internally, and they were testing it. And to do so, they needed to change their dev practices to build artifacts, to push it through a CICD pipeline, all of these things, right? So this this is a large traditional organization. They bumped hard into the change management process, which was like a six-week eight-week QA cycle of like documents and sadness, and they were unhappy with this process. And they realized very early on that they wouldn't be able to make any progress changing things because of this existing process. So what they did was they went and they grabbed the change management manager, like the person responsible for change management, the person whose butt is on the line in the event of breakage. They pulled them over and they said, cool, this is what we can give you with our new fancy shiny technologies. How does this help you? And that was the core question. How does this help you? And so they were able to give the the release manager like everything that Git told them, like all of the bugs that went in and how what particular patches that this solved and whether or not QA had signed off on a given Docker build and all of these things. And the change management person was went from this is new and weird and different. I struggle to see how this helps me realize my business needs to this makes my life easier and it gives me more knowledge over what's going on. And that reduces my existential crisis. I am able to deliver better value. And that shift, that was the process of change. That was taking the process and asking, why does it exist? Who is affected by it? Who's forced to make decisions under it? And how do we move that in a way that the process remains because we can't remove the process. You can't cut it away. It doesn't work like that. And I'll get into why in a moment. But how do we take this and make it easier for this person to do their job, for these people to feel safe? And I thought that was a really good story there. The second thing I wanted to say about process and why it's hard and why I think I really like the scar tissue mentality is that once you have a process, you can't unhave a process. I'm, 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 I'm not kidding. Process dictates the choices you can make. And once process has dictated the choices you can make, it, it becomes self-perpetuating. This is the choices mm-hmm. that we can make. We make these choices. This is just how we do things. So when we start approaching, let's change the process or let's remove the process, you can't. You have to think about it from how do we make the process more flexible? How do we improve the number of choices we can have under the process? How do we make the, pro- the choices that seem unsafe feel more safe? Because the process can't go away, at least not on a short time scale. Yeah, that goes back to what you were saying, Coraline, about how the process is often scar tissue over something bad that happened. And so removing that is a scary thing. Like, every, oh, my God, well, the, the bad, bad thing's thing going to happen, happen again. again. Yeah. So. I think to your say, like you're adding flexibility, doing some physical therapy on it, stretching it out, making it more able to account for the new situation. It's a great metaphor. And like the bad things might happen again. How many times have you bumped into a process and no one remembers why it's there? Mm-hmm. The bad things, no one knows what they are anymore. It's just how we do things. It's like that experiment with the monkeys and the cold water. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. I'll just go through it briefly. So, I don't remember when they did this experiment, probably in the 50s. It was a group of monkeys in a room. There was at the top of a ladder was a banana. And anytime one of the monkeys wanted the banana, they would go to the top of the ladder and try and grab it and they would get doused with cold water. Everyone would. And so they very quickly learned not to do that. And then 
one by one over time, they would replace one of the monkeys with a new monkey that had never had that experience. But anytime anyone tried to go up the ladder, they would all prevent the person from doing it because some bad things happen when you do that. And so eventually they had replaced all of the original monkeys. None of them had ever experienced this cold water, but they still actively prevented anyone from going up to the ladder to check the, to get that banana. And so that that's the exact same process of we did this thing to prevent X. We don't remember what X was or what the thing was, but we're still doing this. <laughs> Here we are. Pretty much that's how it works. And it can be really hard to see that. It can be hard to step away from our processes and ask, why am I doing this thing? Because that brings up a lot of feelings of shame and defensiveness. Well, what if I was doing wrong things, quote unquote? What if I was doing detrimental things? Well, then I've done things that don't jive with myself as a person, with my own idea of who I am. I start to feel like I've lost free will because all of a sudden I'm having to consider that my actions are deeply constrained by the, the systems that I have to participate in. All of that is lots of cognitive dissonance. So much cognitive dissonance. And so like at a, at a employment level, it's, it's kind of easy to step back and go, Oh, well, it's just how the company works and I don't have any agency. Um, we have a lot of like social training to accept that, but it's still terrifying when all of a sudden we're confronted with, well, this process is actually not helping us in the ways that we want it to. So because I literally just before we started recording this episode, I literally just came from a therapy appointment. I'm seeing all of this through the lens of uh, somebody who has some uh, adaptive behaviors that serve them well at one point, but perhaps are no longer doing so. And I'm trying to think like, well, what's the organizational equivalent of cognitive behavioral therapy? When I think figure that out, I expect to be on the talk circuit and have a really well received book. I would be so down with that. That would be amazing. (laughs) But you're not wrong. A lot of these ideas aren't. I went through dialectical behavior therapy, again, because I had maladaptive behaviors that were great at one point, but are not super helpful anymore. So a lot of these ideas are just coming out of the things that I observed myself doing in therapy. And while I was just rebuilding myself after therapy. So I'm just watching the behaviors and asking okay, how should we think about this? What is a different framing for what we're doing? And picking new framings gets us out of that kind of adversarial mindset that we, it's really easy to to take on board if someone says, oh, you're doing this thing, maybe that's not okay. So I've been really good about this, but a couple minutes ago, I went onto my shelf and I pulled out this book and I'm holding up to my uh, fellow panelists. It's called A Broken System. It literally has a picture of silos on the front of it. Uh, this is a book that my dad wrote. It's copyrighted 2005. It's based on work that he did uh, as a consultant in uh, Placer County, California, uh, where they tried to take all of these disparate social services, uh, mental health and probation and school services and, you know, health, you know, physical health delivery services and all of these different uh, different aspects of the system that an individual person with multiple needs might interact with. And they were trying to integrate all of those and create cross-functional teams, if that sounds at all familiar, right? And so this first book that he wrote, uh, A Broken System, is uh, basically exploring the thesis that categorical funding streams create a lot of organizational pressure to keep pots of money separate, and that those play out in um, different pipelines of training, where people in different pipelines get different training, and they get enculturated with different values. 
they get different jargon, and all of those things are structural things that prevent people from working together. And now I'm actually going to have to talk to my dad about this because what he observed was that, you know, this thing worked for a while and then they got a new person at a critical point fairly high up the reporting chain and their support for doing this integration fell away and everything snapped back to being categorical and and siloed again. And, you know, when we've talked about it, he blames categorical funding streams. But now I'm I'm wondering how much of a uh, cultural element there was to that, too, and how much this threatened people's sense of safety um, to come into the system and and see it and realize that it was behaving very differently than the ones they were trying to deal with. That would have been a big a big part of it. And as soon as the the pressure to move, and that's a, like a huge thing about systems, right? As soon as the pressure to change the system vanishes, the system will just snap back. All systems mm-hmm. will do this, um, at least until you've hit the new local maxima, which is then it's self sustaining. Uh, the funding model part of it is actually, I think, really interesting because as soon as money is involved, you get like this existential mode. And if there is mm-hmm. a, one agency doing a thing, well, it's easier to say, oh, you get less money versus eight agencies. Just from how I've observed governments liking to defund things, which sucks, but yeah. it's kind of what will happen. They'll take more from one than they will from eight. Yeah, I mean, the, the money feeds right into that existential thing. And I think that comes back right back to the corporate silo things where the budgets are separated. And, you know, if suddenly other people are doing the things that I used to be doing, that means I have less money and less power and less like right back to that existential threat that you described. Yep. I think both in the case of the DevOps culture change you're talking about, Aaron, and the siloing phenomenon that you described, Sam, the thing that's missing from both of those equations is the impact on the users. Mm -hmm. Which is why I asked about outcomes much earlier. (laughs) Because I've I've been trained to notice that word because part of the work that my dad did was focusing on uh, creating these uh, instruments that would track outcomes rather than service delivery. It is all about the outcomes. It is all about how does this impact users. And I don't generally act with or interact much with uh, what I would consider to be straight end users. Uh, in terms of people who have purchased a product, I'm my end users are devs and ops people generally, and organizations as a whole. So I'm helping them with outcomes towards how do we treat like the people who don't know how to tech like we do, like their people. How do we treat ops people like their people? But yeah, it's all outcomes, as Coraline was just saying. It's all about how do we deal with our you. How do we think about users first? How do we think about the people whose needs we're trying to meet first? I agree so strongly with that. I wonder if this maybe explains part of the traditional startup story, too. And I'm I'm talking about the startup mythology, right, where there's this big entrenched uh, corporation and it's bogged down with all of its internal procedures. And then this plucky young startup comes along and they focus on the user and make everything better. And then eventually that organization grows up and develops its own calcifications. Yeah, I don't know how the startup mythos fits into that. I'd have to go off and think about that. It sort of reminds me of a talk I saw a few weeks ago at Hardifacts uh, by Jenny Bramble um, about building a shared language of risk between QA and development. And and she was saying that the strongest indicator she has for the quality of any given software release is the morale of the team that built it. That's a really interesting metric. Yeah. How did, is there, is there, we're all like, fucked. 
<laughs> well, I mean, yeah, computers are bad, but I'm actually really interested if there's like a, um, something I could go read on that. That's that's a really interesting idea. I want to I want to know more. Yeah, I'll I'll post a video link in the show notes. Cheers. So one thing that has been in the back of my mind throughout all of these these conversations is the idea that, you know, what's the quote? It's very difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. How does that play into all of this? Like, how do you get people to understand these ideas in a way that might threaten their existing jobs as they're structured right now? Oh, this is this is a good question. This drives into context and Context is king. Context is like, or queen or monarch. Context is monarch. (laughs) Context is monarch of your choosing. And it's important to ask that question because that is not a question about making somebody understand it. It's a question about understanding somebody's context and why their context is what it is. Because if you're asking them to understand something that they can't for process-related reasons or context-related reasons, you're offering them solutions that don't make sense. And this is really interesting to me because I had this idea I was presenting at a conference two months ago now about black swan events. So let me let me unpack that. If you haven't heard about this, a black swan event or an out of context problem is something that just kind of comes out of left field for you. So the canonical example of black swans is in Europe. Europeans had seen swans. Swans are white. This is cool. Whites equals swans. Swans are birds. They're white. Great. Europeans got in their boats and went around and ruined the world and ran into Australia. And in Western Australia, they ran into something really interesting, which was more swans. And they like, cool, swans, wait, these aren't swans, they're black. And thus, they had to rethink like what taxonomy meant and what like the swan meant and like a whole bunch of different things around how they're categorizing birds in this particular instance. Um, and it's a really good example because it was outside of their context, outside of their ability to understand what a thing was. So out of context problems are really interesting for that. Because when we're coming to somebody and we're saying, look, you need to understand this thing. Well, I refuse to. It's outside of their context. So if we reframe that, if we rethink it, if, we're, if I'm coming at an organization, I'm saying you should think about Docker. What I'm actually saying is uh, this solution that you think you want, that I think you want, is completely outside of your context. This is an out-of-context solution. This solution isn't a solution for you. And as soon as I start thinking like that, I'm able to more easily approach them and approach their worldview. And uh, the example two months ago, we were talking about the cloud and moving to the cloud. At the time of the talk that I gave, the cloud was the cloud, like AWS was 12 years and two days old. And these people, these these businesses were still talking about moving to the cloud 12 years after the cloud. And so what does that tell us about the systems that they're operating in? What does that tell us about their context? It tells us that contextually, they have a system that demands that they don't understand the cloud. They have processes, years of processes that demand that the cloud doesn't make sense. It isn't a solution. Except it is. Like, I use the cloud for everything. You use the cloud for everything. We're cloud native. I hate myself for using that phrase. Um, but you, you see where I'm coming from. These are The cloud is an out-of-context solution. Docker is even more of an out-of-context solution because it demands such a difference in terms of how we think and process. And I think this is a really interesting kind of way of approaching these set of ideas, especially around technology being political. Because in an out-of-context solution mindset, 
technology, looking at technology as political, means that to adopt new technology is adopting new politics. And that's interesting. Also very scary. Terrifying. Right, because the technology exists literally because of the values of the person who created it. If there was some existing technology that embodied those values, they would have used that instead. But instead, somebody felt the need to go out and create this whole new thing because of this thing they saw as a problem that other people necessarily didn't necessarily. Exactly. And we see this effect. Like we, we've, we're aware of this. Like Conway's Law touches on this idea. Like, Are you familiar with Conway's Law? For our listeners who aren't? For our listeners who are not familiar with Conway's Law, Conway's Law says that the products of an organization will reflect the internal communication structure of an organization. The communication structure is politics. 100% that is politics. So organizations can only produce things meant for organizational communication structures like that organization. So when we look at Docker, when we look at this, the way that they solve that problem, we're not looking at a technological artifact. We're looking at a communication structure codified. And this is why, exactly why I say that microservices is not a technical design pattern. It is a social development structure. That's a fantastic reframe. Because that's where all the work lies, right? The work lies in changing the social context in order to make microservices happen properly, not in actually breaking up your code. into like That's comparatively trivial, I would say. Yeah, breaking down your code is easy, but I've talked to people where they they say, oh, yeah, we went with microservices, but then we were just kind of monolithically deploying it. I'm like, yes, it's because it's not a technical pattern. It's a organizational pattern. And they don't get that. Like, that's not communicated well by our culture because social stuff is, like, icky. It's not rational. It's not logical. It's not Vulcan. We can't Vulcan this. And that's where and you can don't... use Conway's Law to your advantage, right, in a microservices environment if you do it right. If you have exactly. the power to hack the organization to create the communication structure that you want. Absolutely, yeah. But you have to be aware that you're doing that. You have to be aware that that's what you're aiming for when you try to look at and adopt new technology. Without that awareness, new technology adoption is difficult at best. You bump into this out of contextness. You bump into, well, this isn't how we do things. But without that awareness, you can't do that. And this is why I really want to talk about this so much is... This is the awareness of what these things mean. At the end of every show, we do reflections, which is the sort of takeaways and the interesting ideas that we're going to be thinking about after the show. Uh, and I'll give it a start because I, I had a, an idea that popped into my head as you were talking about introducing feminist ideas into spaces that, that aren't friendly to the idea of feminism, but who the ideas could still be successful there as long as they don't have the sort of baggage of it. And it brought it brought me back to, I think it was episode 50 with Steve Klabnick, where he was talking about using anarchist organizational structure in the way that his, I think it was Russ Lang, is organized, but without using any of the language or baggage that you have, you get with when you talk about anarchy and anarchist organization. And sort of it reminded me of the same sort of thing where you sort of smuggle the idea into a space and get the ideas to do what they're supposed to do and be effective as they are without bringing their historical baggage along with. I think one of the things that struck me, Oren, and it's an idea that I've thought about before, is the idea that software is political. And I think one of the things that I want to think about a little bit more is how using an awareness of that fact can be used as a 
as a positive tool to affect change in an organization. And Sam mentioned this a little bit. How can I use the fact that I know technology choices are political to pave the way for making the right technology choices? And that's something I want to think about a little bit more. Well, that ties directly into what I was going to talk about as a reflection, which is the uh, we talked about this idea that technology carries the cultural context and the values of its creators. And we've been talking about this in terms of how to get an organization to adopt new technology that is foreign to them. But I feel like there's this other side of it, which is that when you create a new technology, it's incumbent upon you to understand your own context in such a way that you can explain it to others. Because if you can't do that, your technology will not succeed. That's a really good idea. I need to go off and think about that. Wow. Thank you. Beyond that, if I'm making a technology, how do I think about the political ramifications of that and how that's going to affect others? That's really interesting. And like, how do I communicate those things? That's interesting. I really need to think more about that. Thank you. I'm glad you like it. All right. Well, thank you. This has been a wonderful show. And uh, to our listeners, if you've enjoyed this, I would like to invite you to come and uh, join us in our Slack community where we can talk about these and other things. Um, and you're welcome to do that by uh, donating any amount to uh, our cause on uh, patreon.com slash greater than code. Literally any amount will get you into our Slack community. And uh, we would love to, to see you there and to continue the conversation. And until next time, thanks and goodbye. Goodbye.